Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, if you're squeamish, you may find things a little tricky. My guest is V.L. Valentine, aka Vicky Valentine, whose debut novel, The Plague Letters, takes us away from our very contemporary crisis to an historical plague, one which, reassuringly, we did eventually beat. The novel follows a group of individuals stranded in 17th century London as the plague ravages the population, as well as featuring a host of fantastically gross characters and some truly vile details about disease, sanitation and the insides of the human body. It also has a serial killer hiding in plain sight. Fantastic idea, isn't it? You know, a serial killer at work in the middle of a disease-riddled city. It's a wonder no one's done it before, to be honest, and thankfully, Vicky is more than qualified for the job. By that, I mean writing the novel, not serial killing during a pandemic. Vicky is a senior science editor for NPR Radio and has plenty of experience of reporting from quite literal plague zones. Coupled with that, she's also a huge fan of British crime serials, so who better to write this novel? Vicky's also a fantastically gracious guest who has a lot to say about the nerves and neurosis that go into a first novel. She's not afraid to talk about the nitty-gritty from people criticising her characters to anecdotes from her own surgical experiences. Told you, if you have a low tolerance for tales of scalpels and blood, have a sugary drink handy and sit down. I'm not editing it out, this is a bloody horror podcast, people. You know what you're in for. But, if you're ready, come with me to London. The year is 1665, and the streets stink of death and rot. Let's talk scared. Hi, Vicky, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hey there, Um, thank you for having me. Not at all, it's a pleasure. Where in the world do we find you today? Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I live about two blocks north of the National Zoo, which is this wonderful outdoor space. But um, it's not that great right now because it's been closed for most of this pandemic. You've just brought back a kind of horrible memory for me. I've just interviewed a few weeks back Bethany Clift for her book, Last One at the Party, which Mm -hmm. is about, like your own, is about a plague and a pandemic. And there there is an horrendous scene set in a zoo where she finds his animals that have been abandoned during the crisis. And yeah, that it's, it's the most disturbing thing I've read this year. So you just brought that back to me in a, in a flood. So I hope those animals are better anyway. I hope the ones near you are having a nice time. I do apologize for bringing that <laughs> back to you. And I, and I am aware of some of those stories. Um, luckily, I don't think that was not the case at this zoo. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that is the danger of, of writing about pandemics and plague is that you, you, you know as, as you're getting into it that you're going to be writing about some pretty gruesome stuff. And the next thing you know, you come across something that's just so horrifying and it won't leave you and um, it really affects your mood. So, uh, so again, so that, that's a, a hazard of this work. Indeed, I am haunted by that book. But we're here to talk about your book today, which it's called The Plague Letters. It's out next week, April 1st, from Viper Books. But to those listeners potentially thinking, oh no, not another pandemic novel in the middle of a pandemic, I will say this one is very different. 
for a start, it's about a plague that's already happened and which we survived, which is always reassuring. Uh, and it's also a kind of whodunit murder mystery that made me laugh a lot, as well as making me cringe and want to wash my hands. Before we start, can you set us up with what we need to know about the plague letters? Thank you for saying that, because that that is the uh, desired effect I had hoped for people reading this book. Um, uh, so it's set in 1665 in London for London's last great plague epidemic. For some reason, after 16 before 1665, plague came through London on a pretty cyclical basis about every 20, 25 years. Um, unfortunately, killed a couple of thousand people and then became dormant for a few decades. 1665, it came back worse than ever before, uh, save for um, bubonic plague in, uh, in the 1300s. And then uh, it, it was around for about a year. It's estimated it killed about 100,000 people in London out of 300,000 people who were staying in the city during that epidemic. So it was a pretty brutal outbreak. But my way into this book was as actually I did my master's degree in, uh, in London at University College London. And I was living with one of my good friends at the time and was introduced to all of these wonderful murder mystery shows um, that you have in Britain, which, you know, are pretty delightful, which is not a thing to say <laughs> about murder mysteries, right? But I kept wondering, like, how do all of these amateur sleuths solve these cases? And that might explain a little bit. I'm glad you thought the book was funny. It might explain a little bit about why the book might strike some people as funny, because that was my initial thought for the protagonist, Simon Patrick, was this is a guy who has absolutely no idea about how to solve a murder mystery. Because as I put myself in the shoes of these amateur sleuths that were being portrayed, or even, even Midsummer Murders, right, where you've got five bodies dropping all around you, it was like, how in the world do you solve these things? And kind of trying to do a little bit of a, a nod to the fact that outside of fiction, it's, it's kind of impossible for the average person to solve a murder mystery, especially a serial killer, which is what we have in the plague letters. Yeah, so you've introduced the two main components there of the story. There is a plague and there is a serial killer. What put those two ideas together in your head, though? Yeah. Because it's a really clever idea, and I'm amazed it's not been done before. But what connected those dots for you? So again, it goes into a little bit of human hubris. So one, it's how do you solve a murder? And two, um, there was a quite active medical community in London already uh, in terms of physicians were being recognized as a profession, a real thing that you went to university for, you had to get licensed for, and that if you weren't going to Cambridge and getting your um, degree and then getting a license from the College of Physicians, that you weren't a real doctor, right? So there was this real competition going on between the physicians who thought like they were the ultimate authority in medicine and the apothecaries and surgeons, both of whom were just considered to be like your local butchers, right? No real skill, no real learning, um, barely literate. So there was this real jockeying for, for um, position among these three professions during this time in 17th century London. And then along comes plague. They had no idea of what it was uh, or how to cure it. They couldn't cure it. They couldn't treat it. They were helpless against it. But yet, yet the sheer kind of arrogance, as you read some of these doctors' writings uh, about how they thought that they had the answer, the one medicine, right, to fight plague. And so it was, it was that too. It was one like, 
how can it, how can an average person uh, solve a murder mystery? And then two, a medical community, how can they be so confident that they have the answers when they really don't? And then the plague and, and, and you know, early modern London, it's just so rich, right? And there's a lot of documentation, a lot of letters left behind, journals, medical treaties, first person testimony about what it was like. And then I'll say the final thing was, I just wanted to live kind of in that period for a moment and, and immerse myself in it. And, that, and so like this novel, most of the fun for me was doing the research for it and just, and then trying to construct what this world looked like for these people. But why that plague and why that world? Because I mean, I, I don't run about this subject, but I'm <laughs> assuming that for like, you know, the last millennia, as you say, plague has come along and, and hammered most of Western Europe pretty regularly. What what about you know London and and this outbreak was the one that made you think right that's that's my setting and my my backdrop? Yeah, I know I cheated a little bit. There was this book written probably around two thousand five uh, called The Great Plague, a nonfiction book, and this book just came to life in a way that I hadn't seen in other histories about plague in terms of people saying in their own words at the time what it was like. So it was so vivid because there was enough of a historical record for individuals. So you didn't have like this historian authority or like, uh, you know, the voice of God speaking for the entire people. It was down in the dirt with people like Samuel Pepys, right, who who's wonderful in the plague, just talking about all the horrors in detail. Um, that he encountered. And I will say this, Pepys was my way into it too. So Pepys was writing his diary during the plague. And, and, and this was one of the things that struck me is he knows that there is this dreaded epidemic going on around him. He knows that people are dying. He watches from a tavern window as tens of thousands of kind of uh, the wealthy, wealthier sort are leaving London. And what does he do right after he writes, you know, that he sees London fleeing before his very eyes, he starts flirting with, uh, with the tavern keeper's wife, right? <laughs> and so that was part of it, too, is like, death is all around peeps. He's talking every day about ordering his will, getting his affairs into order. He sent his wife and mother out of town. And he's still running all over town, trying to make as much money as possible and to uh, have as many dalliances as possible. Like, he is just living life to the fullest. And so it's because I had those records, right, that I felt like I could get into this plague and write about it, hopefully, in a very real way and not the way that we expect, where, um, you know, there's there's the perfect world where everyone behaves as they're asked to do. And then there's the real world where people are like peeps and uh, using this as an opportunity because his wife is out of town to have as many affairs as possible. And then my, my other main character, Simon Patrick, he was writing letters during this time. He, was, he stayed behind. Not very many people who had the finances and the money stayed in London. Most people got out of town if they could afford to, but he and Peeps both stayed behind. And Patrick is right, Simon Patrick, he, is the, um, he was the real life rector of St. Paul's Church in Covent Garden. Um, you familiar with the church off the piazza? The piazza there on the uh, it's on the west side. I'm not no, but I'm sure lots of my listeners are. And yeah, yeah. If you visit Covent Garden, right there, that the piazza, there's a big church on the west side. That's like the other St. Paul's. It's called St. Paul's, and so that church was built in like 1630. And then Simon Patrick was the rector there, 
in the 1660s. And um, he, during the plague, is writing letters to a married woman uh, who's left London. And the letters, um, you can tell that he feels more than just friendly affection for her. And they're having some intimate conversations. And so, again, it was just like you had these two characters, Simon Patrick and Pepys, who in the middle of this... um, deadly, disastrous outbreak. What they're really thinking about is is love. Peeps isn't a character in the novel, but he's a kind of presence in the interstitial parts in between it. Simon Patrick is your main protagonist or, or one of a pair of protagonists. Yes. And then, as you mentioned, you've got all these other characters that, that represent the, the hierarchy of medical expertise at the time. So you've got apothecaries and physicians and, and a faith healer and people like that. Are they all real figures drawn from history? Yes, almost all of them are. Um, and, and I will say, this is my first novel, and I did not yet feel the confidence that I could bring to life um, as storied and well-known a figure as Peeps. So that's why I, I wasn't brave enough yet <laughs> to write him as a character. But what I did do was I took some of his personality traits, the the um, the more outlandish ones, and I infused that into the other characters. So there's a Dr. Alexander Burnett. He was a physician during plague. He had plague in his house. And then he later that season died from plague. Uh, there's Valentine Greatrakes, who was a mystic, a faith healer. He uh, he actually, I fudged that a little bit because he did not come to London until the year after the plague. Um, and then there was the apothecary, William Boghurst, who lived and practiced off Drury Lane in Hoburn at the, the White Hart Inn. And so all of those characters that I've talked about, all of them left behind writings about um, their experiences during plague or how to treat plague or their views on on medicine and faith. So I used their writings to kind of flesh out the characters um, and they're, they're, uh, the, more, the more outrageous things that they do um, actually came from behavior I'd seen around me in modern life. So it's interesting you say that because for the purposes of kind of plot and tone, you, you present these characters as antagonistic to each other and they're often quite cruel and quite grotesque, flawed people. Yeah, I was thinking, if they're real, in reality, that they all remain behind in, in London, presumably to help the sick or attempt to cure the plague. I wonder, did you ever feel like you were besmirching their good names by writing them as these these grotesque versions of themselves? So I do absolutely apologise <laughs> to all of the uh, all of the real life people that I used in this book because I don't have any evidence that they are as the way I portrayed them. Um, but at the same time, there was a competitiveness, a very real competitiveness among the medical profession then. And in my professional life, I've been witness to some quite vicious competitiveness, um, lots of combative meetings and things like that. And, and I do think the motives for staying behind may not be as pure. Again, there's what we what we would like to think happens, and then there's what really happens. And you know, I do think some of these people staying behind, like the surgeon, I, I think he he was driven by this need to understand the the human body. And I do think some of the doctors and physicians, apothecaries who stay behind, 
they wanted to be the ones who could make their name finding a cure because they were all writing up plague cures. They wanted that fame and they wanted that money. It was, it, there was a very real competition. So I, I so it is a, it's a distortion of reality, but I, I think it rings true. Well, it's interesting that you mention your own experience because I'm right in thinking you have a kind of career in scientific and medical journalism. Is, is that right? Yes, yes. Am I also right in thinking, and we're going off away from the novel here, but am I correct that you actually spent time on the ground during the 2014 Ebola epidemic? So I did not. I was an editor uh, leading, working with journalists who were on the ground. I, I was editing their stories, talking to them every day. I, I at the time, was trying to get pregnant, and, and my doctor and my husband said, you have a choice. You can either try to have a baby because I was having some trouble, or you can go to West Africa. But we don't think those things are going to work together. So it, it was a hard decision. Um, because really? Feel, <laughs> well, no, it, because I felt like I was asking these my colleagues to put their, their lives at risk while I was staying behind in Washington, D.C. But you're right. In the big picture, no, I didn't hesitate for a, a moment. I wanted, you know, I wanted to have a baby and I did. But so... I was hearing their stories as they were experiencing them on the ground, yes, and working with them. That must be one of the most horrifying scenes I can imagine, because obviously Ebola has this this special um, kind of frisson on about it, because it's such a horrible death, and it's like it's like the ultimate disease, isn't it? And I wondered whether seeing or having reading and writing and, and knowledge of a a rampant disease in a failing infrastructure as it was in West Africa. How much of that do you think influenced or impacted on your writing of this novel? So, so Neil, I want to give you huge credit because you're stumbling, you're hitting all of my weak spots. Like you're seeing the places where I've actually had to back away from the material. So I, I started writing this book and researching it a long time ago. And I spent years of kind of, cause I have a full-time job, other job, years of kind of casually researching it. And then I started writing it in 2013. Um, and yeah, there, there, it's a very different situation to read and write about something that happened in history. And then even as I did to hear firsthand and see the pictures of something that was going on in present day. And so that informed how I wrote the book. And um, I steered away in this book um, I tried to make the, the experience of living through a plague epidemic somewhat authentic, but I did steer away from things that I thought were too brutal, um, but real. And by that, I mean what my colleagues saw in West Africa. You, you see babies dying, right? You see mothers dying. Um, and I didn't want to put, use that in, in this book. I tried to keep it a story about adults because I couldn't go there, especially as somebody who was trying to have a baby and then have a baby. And and I feel like if you want to cut all of this out of the interview, that's fine. <laughs> I don't... No, not at all. But but it's, it's interesting because Katrina Ward, who you talked with her last week, you know, she, she's the author of The Last House on Needless Street. I was on a panel with her two weeks ago and she said um, she writes her nightmares. And I thought, you know, I've got a, a ways to go here because I'm not yet ready to write my nightmares. 
and you know they talk about that with the writing process and i you know i want to hear from you too like you have to really get in there with with your own emotions and what you suffer to make it come alive for for the reader um and this book does that in terms of kind of how we treat each other like that is part of this book it's like the nature of relationships and it is an aspect of my nightmares but it's not my deepest nightmares and so i i i'm just like when Katrina said that, I was like, hats off to you for being that brave, right? And so I don't know if you have any comments about that, because I know, uh, I mean, you're, you're a writer yourself. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a wannabe writer. I mean, I, I'm... No, no, no. A writer is a writer is a writer is a writer is a writer. There's no such thing as wannabe. Yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to smash out a, a first novel, and I, I am playing in, in a sandbox or something which has no basis in reality but it's a psychological weakness or, or pressure point for me, which is to do with, with sleep problems and things like that. And, 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 and the, added, the added thing with me is that I'm writing a story that's a lot about sleep paralysis and, and, and the supernatural sort of traditions that surround that. Um, and and what, one of the, the weird things that, that comes out of the woodwork when you research this stuff is that lots of people think that it can actually be caught, that the more you read into and research sleep paralysis and this idea of like old hag syndrome and people climbing on your chest in the night blah blah, blah. my listeners have heard me talk about this before there is this idea that you know you become susceptible to it yourself so that's fun when you're writing that really frightens you and the act of writing and researching it makes you more likely to experience it that that's a whole new layer of uh kind of meta fear so that's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating i I've, I've had a lot of sleep issues just from being a sleep deprived mom and it is amazing to me how it very much changes and affects how your mind thinks how your body works um and you know talking about psychology there's you know there's this idea that psychology isn't a hard science but i i don't buy into that because if it's happening in your mind it's very real it is real uh and just because we haven't found a, an elegant way to talk about it or classify it yet, yet doesn't mean that it's not real. I would say that is the bedrock of my fear, what you just said, that we haven't found an elegant way to talk about it. Because at the kind of nexus of all my anxieties, whatever they may be, because I have all sorts of like weird free-floating anxieties, the, the point of connection of all of them is a fear that I will be unable to fully express what I'm experiencing and therefore can't get help if I needed it so if I have a thought and it's like like if I'm if I'm a bit panicking I have a thought if I wake up in the night and I'm not quite awake and I have a thought I, I desperately want to understand what I'm experiencing so I can tell someone else and get it off my plate yeah so psychology is is both the, the, the cure and the burden for me so you're right it's a total nightmare this this nightmare that you need help and you can't ask for it and yeah. because you can't I mean I experienced this in I don't want to reveal too much here in my working life where you have a problem and others aren't getting it and you feel like it's your failure to communicate when it's not a failure it's not you know it's not a failure of of an inability of you you or me to put to words what we're feeling it is this idea that the brain it goes back to a little bit to hubris again is modern science uh has this notion that many things are understandable and um, many, you know, many scientists will tell you, including during this coronavirus, many things are well beyond our capability to understand, including the human brain and how to express what we're feeling. Um, so so I, I identify a lot with what you're saying and with this book. 
and, and, and congratulate you for writing about your nightmares because like I said I'm not I'm not there yet I'm not ready I might not get there myself. Um, no, Frederick Jameson, the critic, taught, wrote about the the prison house of language uh-huh. that we are always tied into this prison of language that we cannot get outside it, and it's not sufficient to express all human experience. And therefore, there is always inevitably something beyond what we can express as a communicator and as someone who who thinks of communication as my the major facet of my life. I find that a, a terrifying implication. It is terrifying. I'm going to find some comfort in it because it means that it's not it's not my fault that people don't understand me. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, that was a lovely tangent. Thank you. Thank you for asking about me. It's like that whole thing, you know, like no one ever asked Joey how he's doing. So thank you. Um, I, I love this idea of sleep. I love I love what you're talking about. Sleep. And thank nightmares. you. And, and just the idea that it's very real in all of yeah. it all the things it conjures up but anyway back to your book you don't get off the hook that easy so we were talking a minute ago before you kindly asked about me about you know facing your nightmare and about like how you had to back away from some of this stuff to do with the Ebola you didn't want to confront it and I totally understand that particularly like I imagine with a new child that would be horrendous the, the flip side of that is that what you then do is you present us with a an awful health crisis and infrastructural crisis in 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 17th century london that is nonetheless quite darkly funny you know you give us some horrible horrendous graphic insight into like the sanitary conditions into the plague itself and into the horrors of the primitive treatment and i think i referred to it on twitter as lovely grotesquery was it fun to write that stuff yes Yes, and yes, and I love that you called it a lovely grotesquerie. That's perfect. Uh, it was fun to write it. It was, and I can't explain why, because the truth is, uh, if you were experiencing that treatment, it would have been horrifying. And that—that's part of how we get to the murder part of the novel. Is uh, so. So a little bit more about the book is that Simon Patrick, who who the dead carts every night are bringing in more and more plague victims to be buried in his uh, churchyard. And he starts to notice that some of them don't just have the plague tokens on them and signs of sickness. They have weird markings, cuts, burns on them. And then he starts to wonder if something else is going on here. If if something, if, if, if there's a medical rogue on the loose, basically a rogue on the loose, who's going a little bit too far with his treatment and kind of, the point is, you know, who has, it's not one of the points is who has license to do this to the human body, right? The physicians who are licensed, the surgeons at the time, the apothecaries, um, they were trying some quite brutal things and without the real benefit of painkillers like we have today, because have you, have you gone through, sorry to pry, have you gone through a surgery? Um, only very minor on my knee, nothing, nothing major. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I had a C-section. It was a planned C-section because my, my baby was breech. And I hadn't really thought about what a C-section really was until the night before. Um, so then I became terrified, terrified of what was about to happen, which is essentially, you know, they put a cut in your lower abdomen and then they pull your stomach, your skin, like completely open. Like they're cutting through, this is not medically correct, the, the terms here, but they're, they're cutting into your guts, opening it up, 
and then they're reaching in and yanking out the baby. This is this is a big deal. And then during the C-section itself, you know, the surgeons are wearing those plastic shields that we now all see all the time because people are wearing them on the street for for COVID. I see my blood splattering up on their face on their shields, and when I leave the uh, the OR, the floor is covered in my blood. So the difference is is that in modern medicine, right, the techniques are better. Uh, they've got pain management, and you know they know more what they're doing. But it's still it's a it's a brutality to the body. It really is for the for for a very good reason. And so during the plague and in early modern medicine. There's similar brutality going on to the human body. If you're a physician and doing it, you have permission. Uh, if you're not a physician and doing it, perhaps it's seen as murder. Um, and for, for, for all the right and wrong reasons here. So, so there's a little bit of that going on. And like whose hand has the knife depends on how you um, characterize the outcome. Does that make sense? It does very much. And there's a lovely kind of irony in the fact that some of the the plague society, who are the characters that you mentioned previously, um, each of them falls under suspicion at, at various parts because they then start using this, this murderer's techniques in their own attempted treatments. Um, and I thought that was quite a nice way to address exactly the point you just made that, you know, Cutting open a body is either violation or procedure, depending on exactly what you're saying. Yeah, they thought, well, maybe this person is onto something. He clearly, he, he's got some good ideas and some really bad ideas. I will say the major difference is, because I don't want people to, to get the takeaway from this that I'm in any way impugning the metal community. The, the major difference is the, the members of the plague society, Dr. Burnett, and the surgeon, the apothecary, the mystic, they're doing this with the permission of the patients and the permission of the community. The murderer is not asking for permission. He's just doing it, right? So that's, 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 that's one of the main differences. Um, and he needs to be stopped and they recognize it. But as they're going through this, they, they start asking themselves questions about their own behavior. Do you reckon there's ever been a serial killer obscured by a plague like this? I think there must have been. Yes, yes, I think... People do all sorts of things, take advantage of the shadows and the chaos to do to do all sorts of things they shouldn't. There were lots of crimes in the in the war that were, you know, were were hidden by obviously bigger events. I can't remember the guy's name. There was one serial killer in London who was going around killing people and then burying the bodies in the in the the bombed out houses. Mm. And there's something really eerie about it, isn't there, about being able to manoeuvre and do these things because the normal rules of life have been suspended. It's such a creepy thought. Then people aren't watching the way they normally would watch. Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the problems that Simon Patrick encounters in this book is he doesn't know to who to turn to for help because they're so, the, you know, those who've remi- the, the authorities who have, who have remained behind, they're all overwhelmed. So people are able to take advantage of that, that the normal system of checks and balances, accountabilities, neighbor watching neighbors, it's gone. And some people rise in that situation and take responsibility and take charge and other people use it for nefarious reasons. And there's a whole book to be written about a serial killer forced to abate because of lockdown. Yeah. Because 
it's difficult enough at the best of times, but right now it's got to be really difficult to be a serial killer. It's a really good point. It's a really good point. No one's thinking about the poor serial killers. Right. Um, one of the things I notice, as, as you said, you know, like the infrastructure is failing and the authorities are are failing to deal with this situation, both both the murders and the and the wider epidemic. And you know, you've got a situation where London feels dirty and claustrophobic and almost apocalyptic. And there's a situation where people are confined to their houses. They are under guard, if necessary, to keep them quarantining. No one's coping at any level of government. And the cities are emptying out as people flee to their second homes in the country. Right. Um, Do you see history repeating itself in the present day? Yes. Yes. Uh... (laughs) Yeah. Um, you're amongst friends here i i, I you know <laughs> very few people listening to this podcast are on are on the british government side right now so you are you are amongst friends um yeah and i i think some things are bigger than us a lot of things are bigger than us and i think this coronavirus pandemic is bigger than we as a species are in the sense that I never thought i never thought as i was researching and writing this book that we would ever experience even an epidemic like this Great Plague, which really uh, was, you know, 100,000 dead is, is a huge number. Um, but we, I remember, you know, I think it's 20,000 dead in the West Africa Ebola epidemic. And we thought that that was um, mm-hmm. unfathomable. So I, as I was writing this book I, and ha- going through um, Ebola, I never thought we would see what we're seeing now. And and just, uh, I, I think some people recognize really clearly that this thing is bigger than we are. Um, and then others refuse to acknowledge and admit that, and that's where we get into trouble, right? Because when you acknowledge that your, your opponent, your enemy, um, is powerful and real, and can do great harm, I do think you take it more seriously. And this isn't a comment on the British government. Uh, this, is, this is a comment on the arguments people have had about what to do, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm not, I'm not singling out any particular leader. Um, it's a failure to take it seriously. And uh, what they did do uh, in, the, in the 1665 plague epidemic, they did take it seriously but interestingly enough, they still didn't curb their behavior. So it, it tells me something, and I would have to do a lot more research about, there is something about human behavior that even when we're told, right, you know, you only learn things the hard way, even when we're told what to do, and Simon Patrick and Samuel Pepys, they both knew how to protect themselves during this plague epidemic, which is basically the same public health rules now. You stay away from people. You stay away from people. That's it. That's it. Um, they both knew this, and, and uh, neither one did it. Patrick continued to go out in the streets and visit his parishioners and, and deliver food and money to the sick houses. Uh, I mean, to people locked up in their houses. Peeps didn't stop his activities. Um, Boghurst, the apothecary, you know, he probably treated hundreds and hundreds of patients dying at, at their bedside. And, and they still did it, and they did it for different reasons. And um, it just, you know, with Peeps, he just, uh, he wanted to live his life. And I think that's a very strong urge in many people. And being told 
not to live your life the way you normally do and the way you want to do it, for some reason that's hard. Does that does that make sense? What I'm it saying? completely does. And um, there's a, there's a great scene in the book where Valentine Great Rakes, fantastic name. This um, this this mystical healer. He he holds a kind of an event. And and they even talk about the ethics of holding it because of the plague. And he still says like, no, I'm 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 going to hold it, you know. And and everyone turns up, and it reminded me of things like you know, Vanilla Ice put on the, a gig despite despite COVID, like quite famously and stuff like that. Uh, and it just made me realise that you know nothing ever changes, does it? Yeah, yeah. But did, were there moments during this past year when you you don't have to say what they were? when you were doing things that you knew you weren't supposed to do in terms of the public health guidance? Yeah, I suppose there were. I mean, I, me and my wife have been very fastidious with the, the with the isolation because my dad is 84. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's in the very high risk category. But we haven't, I don't think we've breached the rules, but what we have done at times, particularly in the summer when everyone was very much relaxing about it, was we, we followed the rules perhaps to the letter rather than the spirit of them, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. It was only really in the autumn when things were getting bad again over here that I actually said to my wife, we need to take this really seriously. Largely driven by the fact that my neighbours weren't and I was getting angry and then thinking, oh, I'm a hypocrite. So that's when I drew the line. But yeah, I think we've all, I mean, I'll tell you what I think, and this might be, I might annoy people saying this. What I've got quite annoyed by this year we're, we're trying to apply universal rules to a very ununiversal society. When, I when think. Peop- yes, exactly. Well said. People are all in different situations. So, yeah, it's interesting. We're talking about all these things to do with human behavior and society and stuff like that. And, and if I'm honest, that's the thing that I really most appreciate about this book. Well, two things. One, I loved that grotesquerie because it reminded me of Dickens and Chaucer and that English tradition of caricature and 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 and, and grotesque. I, I love that, but I also like the fact that it, it's not a novel that is particularly dependent on plot, because I'm not a massive fan of this historical whodunit thing. There are certain examples, so Stuart Turton's novels, I love them. You know, there's other stuff out there that I I like, but as a, on the whole, I don't like when you just get a detective and and cram him into a different time period as if that's enough. This novel doesn't do that rather than being a standard who done it it's much more about character and setting and atmosphere and the murders quite logically sometimes feel like a side issue compared to the everyday apocalypse going on around them did that seep in did that did the apocalypse overwhelm the murders or was it planned that way um so again you're just you're just uh you're hitting on you're just right on about all of the stuff that you're saying. <laughs> but I will say uh, thank you for all those wonderful things you just said. I mean, clearly you made my year. But um, yeah, so so one, as, as I'm writing and uh, for better, for worse, <laughs> what I'm interested in is how the characters relate to each other and the world that they live in. And I am, I don't even know if I should admit this, but I will, uh, you know, I, as this is my first book and um, I, uh, I have a lot to learn about plot, right? Plot, 
plot. I could have characters talk all day long. That doesn't make a good book. You have to have some sort of plot. But it was this sense of what what really matters, right? This is what the characters grapple with in this book and, and why it takes so long to solve the murderers, the murders, because it's like when the world is falling down around you, what do you focus on? And that that those are the different things that, that Simon Patrick keeps getting. That's how he keeps losing his direction because he's struggling to figure out you know, in an apocalypse, where do you look? Where do you put your energies? And then that's when, that's what the role of this kind of uh, character Penelope, this kind of dark horse, uh, this mysterious street urchin, that is her role in this book is she knows through her own horrible experiences what's important, not that she's been able to make uh, that happen, but she knows what she values and she's trying to help Simon see what he should value. And then the question is, in the end, does he get there? Um, so, so that is why at some points, you know, you do question what, what should people focus on? What should the characters in the book be focusing on as, you know, death is at their own door? Yeah. Well, can I jump in? Because that keys into one of the questions I've got written down. And, I, and I'm glad you said it because I was going to like pussyfoot around this question because it has a connotation of criticism. <laughs> Um, so when I was reading it, one of the things that kept occurring to me is it's like um, a maxim that you hear about, about plot development all the time, which is that the worst thing you can have in a story is a passive protagonist. So it's bad to have an observer. You need someone who propels the story through action. And it, it seems to me for a lot of this novel that Simon is actually the very definition of a passive individual. Yet, that's not, from what I can see, a failure of plot. It's that his passivity is actually central to like his journey as a character because he goes from being someone who is just flailing. Like You constantly mention that he's seen as a wet lettuce in the community as someone who just rolls over all the time. And do you think he does go on a journey towards proactivity and and did you have any worries about his lack of vitality when you were writing it uh so again you're right on uh i deliberately started him as a passive character as a person who was struggling to figure out what his own life was about and what he should be doing and having a really hard time getting that answer and uh I, i do worry about it um some people, including my husband, they can't stand him. <laughs> and I was, and, and, and it was this struggle because like, just because you can't stand him and I don't have any answers, just because you can't stand him, does that mean he's not a valid character? Um, that his struggle and what he's going through isn't applicable to others or a real experience. And, you know, people talk about character development and plot development and characters that start at one place and they end up in their, you know, their journey and they end up on a higher level. Um, well, you know, <laughs> in life, that doesn't always happen. Right. And then also, I thought it was fascinating to write about somebody who couldn't make up his mind and other people um, and who was who is getting caught up in the wrong things, because I thought that was a very real experience, a very real human experience. Um, but I think because 
he didn't come out as Penelope does, very strong out of the gate, you know, very strong, definitive, knows his own mind, even if he's wrong. People do have strong reactions to him because he is not like that. Well, no, it's, it's like you say, isn't it? It's, it's a, a realistic approach. It's like, you know, if you said to me, right, go and solve this crime, I wouldn't know where to start. So, you know, I think if you had had him be more practical from the start, it would have been potentially another one of those historical murder mysteries where it's just juxtaposing the standard tropes into a different setting. His journey, it changes the tone, it changes the perspective. All I would say to readers is, is bear with him, because at first I was like, what is this guy? He's just... He's just you know, he's a nobody, but but that's the point for me anyway. You wrote the book. I'm just a reader. That's what I think. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I, you know, I thought I thought his struggle, his passivity, was very real and interesting for me as I was writing him. Um, I'm interested in hearing other perspectives for sure, and I, and there's so much for me to learn about this whole business of writing and compelling interest in your work and what works and what doesn't. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely interested in hearing in general what works and what doesn't. Right. Yeah. And what not you know, I don't want to bother you with this, but like what version of Simon do people think would have worked better for this book? I think Simon works fine for the book. I think he works fine because he he changes. And I think he works well because he has Penelope as a foil, because yeah. Penelope is the very essence of proactivity. I yes. mean, yeah. Sometimes it's like, bloody hell, it'll slow down, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll finish off actually by asking you about Penelope because it, it, in a novel where, where, where a woman is the most proactive character, we spent a lot of time talking about men. I'm assuming Penelope was a fully constructed character from your own imagination. Yes. Yes. You're right again. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's no getting around this. She sees ghosts. And that fact goes fairly unchecked. Mm -hmm. So where did that come from? Okay, well, this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with the mind. And if you're thinking it, it's real, right? Penelope has been through some very disturbing experiences in her life. I won't reveal them right now. And the book doesn't entirely go into them. But she's had a lot of forced breaks from reality because of her childhood. So, at least in her mind, these ghosts are real. And then as the author writing this, who am I to say, I don't know if they're real or not, because if somebody says to me they've seen a ghost, I, I just have no idea. I, I can't discount it. Does that make sense? So I wanted that possibility to be there. I wanted, you know, she really believes that she sees ghosts. And it just, it was another way of developing her character, her reality, and also a sign of the trauma that she's been through. It, it does make sense. And it's it's kind of changed my opinion a little bit. I read it initially as if like, these are ghosts, because at some points they're continued on the plot. It struck me for a while as quite unusual to have 95% of the plot be so mired in the grim reality of, of, of that world. And then to have this little supernatural froth on top but then it dawned on me that actually i'm talking about this world being uber rational you know even the medicine even the medical expertise is, is not that far removed from kind of eye of newt and you know mm -hmm. toads and, and and witchcraft and stuff like that so when, when i thought back about it spirituality and ghosts and the supernatural it kind of fits seamlessly with this 
weird mystical medical overlap so so you're you're absolutely right because now as i think about it more i mean this was a deeply religious world um but i would say even though i know there are answers in the bible about this like why 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 was there a world in which you believed in god but you didn't believe in ghosts and i know that's a there are all sorts of arguments for that but but it's like you said we think we are rational creatures you know the the medical men in this book think that they are highly rational logical men but it, but in my experience you know things are never black and white and we we are not as we made up logic right logic is something we made up right a lot of our world is um fabricated by our minds and so this is how penelope's mind is working and why is her world any less rational than the world of these medical men Mm -hmm. if we talk any further i think we'll start straying into giving too much away so i think we'll leave it there with the plague letters and if you will indulge me i'm just going to ask you my rapid fire four questions that i ask each guest absolutely now, I know you listen to this show, so you've been pre-warned about these. Yes. Um, so question one, what was your gateway to horror and the darkness? The Exorcist. I saw that uh, probably starting when I was 13. And it's a film that I can still watch today and be terrified by. Me too. <laughs> Scares the life out of me. Yeah, and, and it's one of those films i i keep watching it to try to figure out how they did it how they made me feel that way and in some ways it's obvious in other ways it's not when you try to do it yourself when you my second book is more of a ghost story and i'm grappling with that all the time how do i make people feel as scared as i feel writing it right and so that's the exorcist it's just this magic to it because it's a very subtle film in a way i mean sure her head spins around and she's vomiting but that but the acting is very soft in terms of the kind of films that are made today in terms of in your face horror films or slasher films and so it's a very interesting film yeah and it's another one that like we're just saying it it blurs the lines between the medical and the mystical and what is the rational because i I mean i think the most frightening sequence in the exorcist is the one when they've got her in the cat scan and Mm -hmm. it's just so disturbing Mm -hmm. it's so Mm -hmm. distressing to watch you know it really really upsets me so yeah, mm-hmm. that's another one that yes. that walks that line on, on either side of what is rational. Or when they hear the scratching in the attic. Why is it that scratching in the attic is terrifying? Or when she comes downstairs at the party and she, um, she wets herself. They don't make a big fuss about it. They just let you watch it and it happens mm-hmm. and it's terrifying. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, it still scares, scares the life out of me. Um, if you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? Uh, so The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. And again, the plot seems so simple. It seems like a very sparse, austere book, but it's so powerful and terrifying. Um, and uh, she doesn't have to put a lot of bells and whistles and crazy, crazy plot twists, right? It's just a, it's just a ever-growing repetition of the key horror in the book. And, and the emotion at the bottom of that horror. And then the ramifications, the lifelong, generations-long ramifications. It's just, a, I think it's, it's a simple book. And to write something that simple and terrifying, like Dare to Dream. Have you ever seen the play? I haven't, but I've seen the movie. But I have not had a chance to see the play. Have you? 
Yeah, because I've so I've read the book, I've seen the play, I've seen both movie versions, um, and I do like the book a lot. But the play is one of the the greatest experiences of storytelling I've ever had. I I, I took my dad to see it, and my dad is like you know the arch rationalist. He's got he's got no time for ghosts and scares, and I sort of dragged him to see it, and he sat in the aisle, and there's a part where when you see it in the old Drury Lane Theatre in London, she walks down the down the aisle and you don't know she's there until she's at your your seat. And my dad swore audibly and leapt into my lap. Like wow. it, it's and the only the only prop on stage is is a box which serves as all manner of things. Like two men on stage using all manner of stuff to try and get the illusion of what they're doing. It's it's minimalist. It is it's brilliant, yeah. I think I think it's better than the book, in my okay. opinion. I'd be okay. interested to know what listeners think, those uh, who've seen I, it. Yeah, I, I will be back in London once once the pandemic is gone, and I will definitely. I I, I think I saw recently that, that that they were reopening that after closing it down. So great, thank you. I would definitely yeah definitely go out. see it. Treat yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Go and see a play about child death. That'll get you over the. Uh, well, so I've been listening to the audio version of the book again, just as a, just to try to study structure and plot and what's terrifying. And I found myself having to um, fast forward through certain parts. But that that's that's my thing. That has nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's beautiful. The book is incredible. Yeah. If you could could give me a single piece of advice for a fledgling author, what would it be? Uh, it's a nerve wracking business, so you just have to keep going at it. Like the rejection is constant. So you just have to keep it's discipline in terms of perseverance. Just keep writing, keep pushing, just keep at it. My my favorite answer to that question, I always wonder if I could put it on a t-shirt if needed. And and discipline and perseverance works for me. So thank you very much. And my last question, and I feel we've covered a lot of this today. So I'll be interested in what you culminate in, but what truly scares you? I'm just, I'm going to say it's the unseen. It's the dark corners, the shadows. It's the mirrors on the wall in an empty room at twilight. And what did you really just see in that mirror? Did you really just see movement, right? So, and it's, and, and sometimes what I think in effective tension and horror is that you often have this moment where everything seems normal and you think the person is seeing nothing but normalcy around them. And then in comes something terrifying um so it's that unseen that moment right before things go bad Hmm. and it's being able to look into these dark corners and convince yourself that there's something there whether or not there is or not does that does that make sense it does in my my husband's grandmother's house his grandmother died a long time ago there's this corner of her bedroom that I can never look in because there's a chair there. An empty chair in a room in an old house is terrifying for me because I think at any moment I'm going to turn my head and look in that chair and see somebody there. See, you you have nailed the thing that I try and explain to people about the way my mind works. With me, it's not the fear of the thing in the horror movie. It is the fear that one day I may believe the thing in the horror movie. So let me give you an example. Films about possession terrify me. I don't believe in it, 
I don't really believe in anything. I'm, a, you know, I, I, I think we're here for a good time, and then we die, and we put us in the box, and we rot. I think that's that's what I think. Um, I'm here all week, people, typical yeah. waitresses. Um, but I, I, I'm terrified that one day I will become convinced that this stuff is real, and Ooh. then it will affect my life. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it's like you yes. say, you, it's not about whether there is a woman in the chair. It's about the fear of not being able to look. Yes. And being being scared of the fear. That's the thing that I think is underlies all this. And what happens if it becomes real? Because that was one of the, yeah, like you said, because one of the questions I had, if I ever get to ask Susan Hill this, how did... Alice Drablo, she is the elderly woman in the in the woman in black who lives in this haunted house for probably 50 years all alone with this frightening ghost, frightening, powerful, physically active ghost. How did she survive 50 years alone in the house with that woman? Um, so it's kind of like if these things become real, if that flash in the mirror becomes real, what does that mean? <laughs> What is your yeah. life like after that? Yeah, how do you cope once all the rules have changed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that seems a beautifully kind of morbid place to end the conversation. Well, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed no. talking with you. A big fan of your show. And, Thank uh, you very much. I really appreciate that. We are we're trying our best over here from my spare bedroom. Um, everyone... Go out, get the plague letters. It it might sound like the most depressing thing in the world to read right now, but trust me, it's not because what we haven't covered a lot in this chat is that it will make you laugh out loud. Um, it's gross and larger than life and caricatured, horrible but but great fun. Vicky Valentine, thank you for talking scared. Thank you so much. Sometimes on this show, I found that my opinion of a book increases significantly after speaking to the author, and that's definitely the case with The Plague Letters. I mean, I liked it already. As I say, it's a sophisticated book that goes well beyond the standard tropes of either historical thrillers or detective fiction, and it takes its time building this world and populating it with truly memorable characters, and the dialogue is sublime. But, having spoken to Vicky, I now also see layers that I hadn't. The way it confronts the medical community, the levels of satire, the psychological ambiguity, it all adds up to something that feels truly quite different to a lot of stuff out there. And I really would recommend it. Like I say, go in with your patience, girded, because Simon Patrick is a tad irritating and soppy at the start. But then again, so is Hamlet. And a bit of indecision did his literary reputation no harm. The Playlist is a good book. Read it. So a few things to clarify from this episode, things to follow up on. First of all, the wartime serial killer that I mentioned was Gordon Frederick Cummings, a.k.a. the Blackout Killer. He killed four women during the Blitz in London. Um, I'm not going to go into it any further because there's plenty of true crime podcasts out there. And as I said to Cat Ward last week, I'm a bit sick of these dickheads being fetishised. But if you want to read about him, you can find lots of stuff online. It's mostly interesting, to me at least, because of the concept that Vicky and I talked about. The way that people hide misdeeds and corruption within crisis. 
with that in mind, I'm less bothered about the serial killers during the COVID pandemic than I am the Tory donors and the stripping away of rights to protest. But maybe that's just me. Moving away from politics, because, you know, I always try and resist the eternal pull to sneak in snide remarks, but I fail. Let's talk books. Vicky made a very good case for The Woman in Black. It's it's that rare thing, Susan Hill's novel. It's a story that succeeds in all its formats. The book itself is a lean, pared-back piece of absolute terror, and I do second Vicky's recommendation. But I also think that the play is a must-see for anyone who gets the chance. You'll never forget the experience. Just ask my dad. I was talking to Vicky on Twitter about her love for the woman in black, and wonderfully, Susan Hill joined in. Sadly for me, she has protected tweets, so I couldn't actually see what was being said. But Vicky tells her that when she put forward her idea of a prequel, simply called Drablo, to cover the five decades that the old woman spent living alone with the ghost, Susan Hill was not appalled by the idea. So, if ever she writes that, I'm going to get her on the show and demand a fraction of the credit at least. <laughs> but seriously though, how cre- how creepy would that novel be? 50 years of living with an evil, vicious spirit in a desolate old house with no company or respite. It could be a masterpiece. So please, Susan, please. What else to discuss? Uh, yeah, okay, so... It's beginning to feel like my four questions at the end of every interview are getting a little tired. I don't know if you think the same, but we're getting some of the same answers each week. uh, And I'm thinking of changing them up. I'm always going to keep the question about what truly scares you, because I think it's a little bit of a USP, a little bit of a trademark. And it's, it's a fascinating question. I've already asked the questions we currently have to a couple of guests whose interviews won't air until May. Adam Ganusi and Jeff Vandermeer, for example. So I'll stick with these same ones until after then, for continuity purposes. But once I'm past those episodes, what should I ask authors? Give me your ideas. Really, what do I ask these icons of contemporary terror that I've got coming up in the summer? You can let me know by emailing me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at talkscaredpod. I'm also trying to put a bit more effort into my Instagram, Talking Scared Pod, fully enough. But I do struggle with that platform. I'm not a visual person, so come say hi on there and change my mind. Some people have been in touch across the various platforms. Um, A big thanks to Thomas Gloom, great name, who has been saying kind things about the show on Instagram. I know he's months behind, but when he gets to this episode... Hi, Tom! Much appreciated. I'd also like to say thanks to Cam McNutt and Luara88, both of whom left lovely reviews of the show. As promised, I will shout out every single reviewer, regardless of how nice you are or not nice you are. And that's a promise that I'll keep until at least the reviews start coming in so thick and fast that I can't keep up. I haven't asked for a few weeks, but please, if you do like the show, and I know that lots of you do, Drop me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'm really hoping to make a serious go of this show, and to do that I need visibility and eventually some some finance. And reviews are one of the only ways to increase that on Apple Networks. Thank you in advance, kind people. That's my begging over for the week. Next week we're getting dark and satanic, but until then, 
wash your hands, avoid rats and fleas, and choose your plague doctor wisely. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.